All right, let's take a look at, at Matthew, Matthew chapter 2 again today. So we're following up on the conversation that we had on Sunday, the message that we had on Sunday. We just want to discuss this, and the whole theme was a different kind of king. And we looked at the first six verses, Matthew chapter 2, and we really contrasted King Herod and then the circumstances of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. So let's just read the verses again and kind of reset the background, and then we'll have the discussion together. So Matthew 2 and verse number, um, verse number 1. And I will say, Sylvia and Evelyn, I am going to try to get these in Spanish again. I just I traveled this week. I just got here for the service, so... Um, but I am going to, I will start doing these in Spanish again for you. So I'll do my best. Um, so Matthew 2, 1 through 6. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. That's interesting, this statement there. I didn't really notice that before. It's the, art not the least among the princes of Judah. In other words, because you are the, they're paraphrasing the passage, because you are the least in size and population, you're not the least in status, because out of you is coming the Messiah, the governor uh, that will rule my people, Israel. And so we, we reminded that that is a reference to the prophecy of Micah, chapter 5, verse number 2. I put that on your handout. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth to me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now, if you remember, I, I mentioned the insignificance of Bethlehem and just what an insignificant place it was. Two, two censuses were performed. Uh, maybe I shouldn't call them censuses. More explanations of the distribution of the land. Like the children of Judah are going to be given all these cities and in and twice in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the children of Judah are given all the cities that they are going to get to inhabit, and Bethlehem is left out of the list in each, each time. So it's just, uh, in the, the status of all the towns and places, five miles outside of Jerusalem, it's just very, very insignificant. But then at the same time in this passage, we were introduced to King Herod the Great. So just remember some of the things that we pointed out on Sunday. Herod the Great, um, he is a part Jewish and part Gentile ruler. 
Did Herod, uh, is, is Herod in the Davidic kingly line? Yes or no? Is he in the line of King David? Did he have a right to the throne of Israel at all? No. The answer is no, he didn't. In fact, he was on his, um, on his one side, I believe it was his mother's side. Yeah, on his mother's side, he descended from the Maccabees, and who were political rulers in, in Israel, fought against the Greeks. And so he used that and that position to, to have good standing among the Jews. But then he also affiliated with the Romans, and he would combine the Greek uh, culture and the Roman government, and they would put this kind of compromise together where Herod does certain things for the people of Israel, and he does certain things for Rome. He's a very political figure. He's also a brutal figure who ends up worrying, and he has his wife and mother-in-law murdered and executed, just a, just a mess, because He's so focused on consolidating that power. And then he would have children that you read about all throughout the Gospels. The uh, Herod that uh, ascended from him, as well as some other rulers that you find all throughout, they kind of broke up his reign. So the Romans set him up as a puppet governor. He, he, uh, he's very effective politically. He's very successful politically and very successful um, architecturally. He did a lot of building projects. The most significant of his building projects would have been what? The temple. Would have been the temple. Herod's temple was just a magnificent, magnificent structure. And so you have Herod the Great, and do you remember what we said, that statement in verse number two, when the wise men come and they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Why is that? If you're just trying to do a little review to why was that, would that have been so impactful of a statement to Herod? Does anybody remember that? Yes. That was his title. Does that, for bonus points, does anybody remember who we said gave him that title? Very powerful figure. <laughs> He's whispering to you behind you there. Yeah, Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony of the Mark Anthony and Cleopatra uh, saga and close associates at one point of Julius Caesar. So all of this is happening uh, in the next generation. Everything we're reading about is the next generation after Julius Caesar. So it's, it's a very pivotal, pivotal time in history. So Herod, had, by the most powerful government in the, in the world, by far, Herod is told, you are the king of the Jews king of all the Jews. And so when he hears there's one who is born king of the Jews, he is obviously troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, I don't know the significance of what everybody in Jerusalem is troubled about, but maybe they're troubled because Herod is troubled. I don't, I don't know exactly. But he's obviously troubled because he knows the prophecies, and he thinks, what astounds me about Herod is though Herod knows what is true, he, tr he, he knows, because what does he do? He says, well, let's go, and, let's go and talk to the scribes. So he talks to the scribes. The scribes say, Bethlehem, Herod believes the prophecies that this is going to happen, yet he still sets out to stop the plan that he knows God has set in motion. That's pretty, 
pretty audacious and bold, wouldn't you say? And that is really the spirit of the the spirit of the kingdom of this world, even knowing. See, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people that are caught in the middle, right? There's a lot of people that are they don't know better. They they follow ideas ignorantly. But there are people who know better. There are people who know the truth and yet still choose to follow the enemy. So where this is heading is how the kingdom theme that is introduced throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus refers to his kingdom as the kingdom of what? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. And that's significant that his kingdom is not a kingdom that's an earthly kingdom. So we kind of had this discussed thought from Sunday, and I want to discuss it a little bit more. When we make this application and we say that there are still kingdoms, so to speak, we're not talking about the, the king of, there's still a king in England and in Norway and Jordan. We're not talking necessarily, but they would be included. But not, we're not limiting this idea of kingdom to a specific government per se. But the idea of just kingdom, kingdoms at work in the world today, what is, it that, what is it that people are looking for from worldly kingdoms? Now, obviously, if you're at the top of the kingdom, if you're a Herod, or a world leader, a politician, or somebody, a big business uh, influencer, that you're, if you're somewhere at the top of the food chain, if you're at the top of the food chain, what are you looking for in a kingdom? Power, authority, benefits, you know, a legacy, right? You want to be, these people want to be remembered in history. We think about even the people like some of the, they're not even in government now, and I'm not making any judgments. I don't know these people, so I'm not making a judgment on any of them individually. But you think of people like Bill Gates or Elon Musk, who they are about, their mission is really to change the world. I mean, right? That's what they, now, I don't know the state of their soul. If they have a relationship with God or not, that's not my point. People like that, though, people with that kind of power, they are world shapers. They are world changers. And it can be for good or it can be for evil. So if you're at the top of the food chain, what you want out of a kingdom is, is power, authority. And what about us? We're down the chain. We're all way down the chain. We participate in the kingdom, the kingdoms of this world. We participate in the kingdoms of this world, but we don't control them. We don't have the power necessarily. What are people like us looking for in the kingdoms? What's that? Okay. He says safety. What else? Pleasure. Pleasure. Yeah, actually, that's a big one. A lot of people are just like, just give me enough money. Give me enough food. Give me enough of this so that I can have the pleasures of this life. Yeah. It's interesting, like... That's a, that's a Western thing. In the West, we want pleasure. Like in the East or the Middle East, especially in the Middle East, they're not looking primarily for pleasure, but for glory. The glory of their people, the glory of their, their identity. These are things that people look for. What else do, do we look for in a kingdom? What's that? Oh, salvation? Yes. Yeah. What else? What are what are people looking for in the kingdoms of the world? Power. 
Huh? I think. People are looking for supremacy. For instance, they think their kingdom is the greatest. That's right. And it creates conflict. Right. Yeah, that you look at all the there's many even that actually the idea of supremacy goes like it spans everything. I didn't have that one. Because supremacy, people looking for supremacy, it could be like, well, our nation is the greatest, so we will defeat all the other nations. Or it could be our ethnic group is the greatest, or our philosophy is the greatest. Our political idea, like what we believe about this issue or that issue needs to be supreme. So people, even the participants, are looking for control, for supremacy, recognition, status, right? These are all kingdom principles. Anything else? Actually, that's, that's a really, yeah. You want to identify with the king, so to speak. And so for some people, their king might actually be a person. It could be a person political, or entertainment, or sports, or um, philosophy. They identify as followers of something. It could be a national identity, a cultural identity. Yeah, a sense of belonging is very, very powerful. That's why some people will even die for a losing kingdom, because it's that their, their identity is there, rooted in that. Anything else? All right, so let's turn over now and let's talk about this. So this is what we said is a theme that carries all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Principles of Jesus' kingdom. So I'm going to go through. I gave you four principles on Sunday. The four principles, let's just, uh, we're going to discuss the same topic with each of the principles. So the four principles, and you can find more, I'm sure. These are just four principles of Jesus' kingdom that I would, that I would propose are completely antithetical to the, the world's kingdom principles. So I said, number one, principle of Jesus' kingdom is that he and his followers embrace insignificance. We embrace insignificance. Secondly, we invert the power dynamic. The weaker, the, the, the greater serves the weaker. The power is turned upside down. The dynamic of power is turned upside down. Thirdly, we fight spiritual battles as opposed to fighting physically. Fourthly, we live for eternal life rather than a better life. So let me ask you this. So notice the discussion question. This is how we'll spend the, the rest of our time tonight. The discussion question, thinking about what you know about, about the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the Gospels. In what ways did Jesus demonstrate these principles? And then how do we, and then the second part, so what I want to do on each of these is, first of all, if we're going to say embrace insignificance, the first thing I want to say is, how did Jesus demonstrate that? Then secondly, how do we sometimes as Christians maybe get it wrong? And we, we're not looking at it that way. So first of all, let's talk about embracing insignificance. Think about Christ, the life of Christ. Obviously, in his birth, we see it because... He's born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is mentioned specifically here as, the, the, as one of the, the very least. So how does Jesus demonstrate in his life and his actions 
the principle in his kingdom that his people are to embrace insignificance. Washing feet. Yeah. How else? Anybody think of any? Well, many things that he said. Um, like, um, just thinking of a uh, verse that just slipped my mind. Uh, I come not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Yeah. The whole theme of serving is, is his entire life is just a life of service. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap between the first one and the second one here. Embracing insignificance, inverting the power dynamic. I would think that that, that statement that he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. How else, though? Thinking about the insignificance. Where did, where did a lot of his preaching take place? Outdoors. In backwards towns. Right? Like, wh where did he grow up? He grew up in what town? Nazareth. Grew up in Nazareth. When people found out he was from Nazareth, what did they say? Does any good thing come out of Nazareth? Yeah, did anything good come out of Nazareth? Not anymore. Not anymore. But yeah. What, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That was it. Do you think it's... I mean, there's no... He could have, he could have went to come to any town. He could have grown up in any town. But he intentionally chose a town of disrepute to be there. He spends his time, a lot of miracles up in Capernaum, which is the Galilean countryside. Right? These are, these are, he's demonstrating that he's not about uh, being um, accepted by the important people. Yeah? Yeah, looks like he could have come with uh, he, he could have done anything he wanted to with the power that he has, but he didn't. Right. He was very very peaceful and very concerned and considerate to people. Hmm. Insignificance. What were you going to say, Deborah? Nicodemus, for instance, was an, an important person that he could have, like, you think about the people he interacted with, he did interact with some important people, but they wanted to be secret. Like, Nicodemus didn't want anybody to know that he was with Jesus. And then the, like, the people that everybody knew Jesus was with were insignificant or worse than insignificant. Right, people that no one wanted to be around. Yep. Yeah, you don't go to Samaria. You don't talk to Samaritans. You don't talk to harlots. You don't spend time with tax collectors. You don't do any of that stuff if you want to advance your social status. And isn't that a, isn't that a kingdom principle in the world? That you need to be thought of well? You need to be thought of highly? You want an image? Right? Are we not an image-focused people? Like, I'm not saying we should be. I'm saying that's, like, this is the second part of the question. Like, Jesus was not concerned with image from a human standpoint. 
He was concerned with image from a divine standpoint, that, that people would see that. But so, so in what ways do we not act in the ways of Jesus in this regard? Where we sometimes, even as Christians, though, we've been taken out of this world's kingdom, we belong to Jesus' kingdom, but sometimes instead we, in regard to insignificance, do you feel like that we sometimes want to be thought of highly? Or people sometimes are looking for that significance. Yeah, we are. In what ways do people do that? Now, I know, I know a lot of you personally, and I know that a lot of you don't have that mindset, which is good, right? Like, you're not people that are like, so it's good if it's hard for you to think of these things. I get it. But it's good for us to be also aware of that, that the temptations. They can, come to, they can come to young people too. Like, if you're a young person building your career, right? Like, a lot of the, like, go on somebody's uh, LinkedIn page to look at their professional profile. And what they're going to do is show you on there how significant they are. They put up, somebody puts a resume together. Now, by saying you shouldn't do that, well, no, part of this is we have to operate in this world. But we can become obsessed with making a case for ourselves, for who we are, for what we've done, for what we've accomplished. It even happens in, in churches where where pastors or ministry people, they want to be thought of as, well, in my sphere of ministry, I'm a significant player. People think highly of me. People are impressed with me. But Jesus wasn't concerned about any of that. Not at all. Even the Apostle Paul wasn't really concerned with that. He, he was, you can think whatever you want of me. I'm just here to do the work of a greater one. Any other thoughts on this, this idea of insignificance? Before we move on. It's just the Bible. There's a best, what you're talking about. In the Bible, there's many verses in the Bible that tell us to make sure we maintain that balance. Like in Jeremiah, it says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, and let not the rich man glory in his riches. Yeah, that's really good. Glory in this. Just power phrase the rest of it, that you know me and you understand who I am. Right. So it's not as if you can't be a powerful, a mighty person, or a rich person, or a uh, wise person as a Christian. Right. But make sure that all of that is directed at the glory, for the glory of God. Right. That's the balance. Yeah. Where when I am weak, then I am strong. For it. Same thing. Right. Recognizing. Yeah, and if God does choose to give a person a level of worldly significance, that's a tremendous stewardship, right? Like if somebody's been given this this place where they're they're well thought of and well regarded, they have to be so careful because of the verse that you just said, where yeah, you have, you are wise, you are mighty, you are rich. So be careful, be careful with that. So, yeah. Okay. So, no, so number two is similar, but, but it is a little bit different. And we, we talked, to, and I, we already mentioned it just a little bit, but we invert the power dynamic. In other words, we are here, as Jesus said, I did not come for people to minister to me. I came to minister to people. I came to be a, to be a servant. And so Christianity is really 
the it's it's that inversion. Like we're not looking to be the ones in charge of everyone. We're looking to be the ones serving other people. So in the words of Jesus, he said things like that a couple of times. He said that the first would be what? Last. He said that the ones who exalt themselves will be abased, but the ones that humble themselves will be exalted. So it's a theme all throughout the um, all throughout the Gospels. Jesus demonstrated it. We talked about the washing of the feet. In what other ways? Any other ways anybody can think of where Jesus demonstrated that? The ultimate way is at the cross, right? Like the sacrifice of death is the is his, of his death is he is taking all of his power and he's surrendering it all for us. Right, we saw that a few weeks ago. It's all in the Sermon on the Mount. If you somebody sues you for your coat, give them your, your cloak also. If somebody um, somebody smites you on the cheek, you know, your job isn't to show them how much tougher you are. Your job is to turn the, turn the other cheek. If someone is asking you to walk a mile, go ahead and go two with them because it's not about you being in power. Yeah. Don't, don't look for the highest seat at the dinner. I think we can, like, where are some places that obviously we have to deal with? Our workplaces, right? Where people often are trying to edge each other out for either recognition for the boss or an opportunity to be in charge of people. When we have an opportunity to serve our coworkers. Like, I don't know, that, that's a, a helpful thing for me sometimes, and I don't always get it right. But just to go to work with the people I work with and realize, okay, I'm actually here not just to serve the company, but how am I going to serve these people that I work with today? That doesn't mean to let, and I know we've talked about this before, it doesn't mean to let people take advantage of you or be lazy. But in a, in a scenario, like in a healthy work environment, how am I going to be a servant to these people? Right? So Jesus can serve, and then you think about a negative aspect of it. Like people go into government, and the purpose they're supposed to go into government for is to serve the people. But, and even many that go with the best intentions get corrupted, and now no longer are they serving the people, but there's power, there's money, and all of that, and it's as if, I mean, we're supposed to be their bosses. And we elect them. Yeah, it's But you know what? It happens to pe the, the same. That just is happening on a macro scale. But it happens in a micro scale in individual people's lives. You've all experienced some a coworker that gets promoted to be a boss, and all of a sudden, like it just switches, and they're on like a power trip, because now they're like, oh, like how many of you have experienced that before? I mean, you've like that's something that you dealt with. So it was like, oh, we used to work together, and now, you know, you're acting like, you know, I'm your, your peon, like you're, I'm your you know, servant that you can order around. Now, the response of a Christian, if that's how you're treated, is to be the servant, right? But it's also to be on guard if you're ever given that opportunity 
to just, we had these, when I was in, in Christian college, we had these positions. It was like, I don't know why they did this. They're, they're trying to teach like young people to be leaders. I, I understand that. But they would, they would set up these like, they're like RA style positions where you had authority over other students. It was just like, I don't know. Strike this on the record in case anybody from PCC ever listens. It was just not a healthy, it was just not a, I'm just kidding, by the way. Um, it was just, I just don't think it's healthy, you know, to give these peers of the students this kind of authority over other students. It just, and some people managed it well, but it just created this unhealthy power dynamic where people aren't typically viewing themselves as the servants of others. Um, now, maybe they should have just given us more training on how to be a servant leader. That would have been, did you guys go through any, like, because you had, did you, they teach you, like, servant leadership training or anything like that? Yeah, they did a lot of it. They did a lot of it. And maybe they do now at PCC. I was, I'm old. It was a long time ago. It wasn't very helpful. I was like, why am I here trying to stay awake? <laughs> Didn't reach your heart, really. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, though, that a lot of businesses now talk a lot about servant leadership. And a lot of Christian principles have, are being, because people realize it works. When you serve people, you get more out of them. So, and it's just a principle of Jesus. And then, so not just in our workplaces, but in our families, right? It's so important that parents are serving their children. It's so important that husbands are serving their wives and wives are serving their husbands because that's what we're called to be. Serves. Okay? The third one here is we fight spiritual battles. Now, how does Jesus, how does Jesus exhibit that? Well, multiple times they asked him, Jesus, when are you going to... Or there's one instance where they said, Jesus, is this when you're going to overthrow the Romans? They literally asked him that. Is this when you're going to overthrow the Romans? And, and he starts to explain to them that this is not how it's going to go. What they expect is not how it's going to be. And then, obviously, Pilate, we looked at that passage on Sunday, where Pilate says, uh, you know, are, are, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, well, that's what you say. And he says, if, I, if my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would fight. But my kingdom is not of this world. So how do Christians, you think, sometimes kind of miss the boat there? And we're not, we, we, we miss the boat of that, hey, we're supposed to be fighting spiritual battles. When, when, when do Christians sometimes get it wrong, do you think? Deborah? Yeah, then we're fighting personal battles. Sometimes instead of spiritual battles, we're fighting personal battles or preferential battles or, you know, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah? Something I can't, I can't remember where it is. It might have been you, but it's, it's, it's for Pastor Eric. It said that we're called to be servants, so we need to remember that when we're treated as servants, we have to act like servants. Yeah, I've, I, I got that from somebody, and it, it always stuck with me. Like, you know you're a servant, based on how you respond when somebody treats you like one. Like I, yeah, that's not original me, but I, it's, it's always stuck with me. We fight. When, do we, when else do we miss the fact that, hey, we're, we're really supposed to be here fighting spiritual battles? Well, let me give you a good example. 
how about a, um, you know, let's say there's some controversy in the, in the city, right? Some controversy in the city over, I don't know, not a moral issue. Some controversy. The windmills. Oh, okay. You went there. It's a thing. Let's say there's a controversy in the cities or the town over the windmills. Okay, this has been a thing in towns around here. Am I, is my point that a Christian is not allowed to give an opinion or make a case? No, we live in a wonderful country where we are allowed to, our opinion does matter, it is to be counted. So if you believe something, you should stand up and say it. But at the same time, is it worth, are those kind of issues worth losing our Christian testimony over? I've known people to, even Christian people, to yell at somebody, get in somebody's face, and to make a big scene over an issue that really isn't necessarily right or wrong. It's not about a moral thing. It's about something, you know, maybe they didn't plow your street on time, but not Frank. They take good care of your street. You've told me that before. But maybe they did something like that. You know what I mean? Like we get into these fights over things that are just, they're worldly issues. They're not even necessarily sinful issues. But we forget that we're, we're doing, the person that we're arguing against, what is God's number one concern for that person? Their salvation. And, aren't, and we can get into this idea that, well, no, we're arguing about something of way lesser significance. I'm not talking about important things like standing and fighting for you know, sexual morality and a, uh, a pro-life position and anything that Christians ought to be the ones to stand up and fight about moral issues. But we all know that Christian people sometimes, we forget the fight that we're in, right? Were you going to say something, Frank? Same society, the world today, there's causes that people want to get into, and they uh, and, and they don't talk about it. There's violence. Yeah. You know, there's protesting, violent protesting, and, and there seems to be more and more of that. Right. You know, it's uh, it's too bad, but it's kind of like uh, human nature. Right. Right. Well, it's like you know. It, I'm not. I, I'm actually, honestly, not giving an opinion on the whole the whole issue. But like when that whole January sixth thing happened a couple of years ago, like there were people with Christian flags who had illegally entered the Capitol building. Like I fully support the legal protesting, right? Like we Americans, even we have a legal right to protest, and we should. But we don't have a legal right to break the law with a Christian flag. It just, I just. Don't think you would find Jesus or any of the apostles to have ever exhibited such a thing as that. You know, and it, and it the same with protests on whether they're conservatives or liberals. We, we're here to fight a spiritual battle. Now, we do live in a day and age where politics and spiritual truths are starting, not starting, have been intersecting. And so we need to be very wise and we should be politically active, but not over things that are not issues of truth in Scripture. Because we fight, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against uh, the rulers of the darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Any other ways that we forget that we're here to fight spiritual battles? No? Good. All right, well, let's do the last one. And I think this one, this one hits the closest to home. I wish I'd say a little more time for it. And I don't know... 
I, I don't know any Christian that doesn't struggle with this one, if, we're, if they're honest. That the worldly principle, the kingdoms of this world, people live for, etern- for a better life instead of eternal life. Jesus' kingdom, we don't live for a better life today, though often does benefit. But that's not what we live for. We live for an eternal life. Now, how did Jesus exhibit that? Well, he said things like, lay up treasure on earth, lay it up in heaven. He said, don't gain the whole world, but lose your soul. He said, hey, it's it's rich young ruler. You want eternal life? Maybe you should think about selling everything that you have. And we know that wasn't what Jesus was doing. He was revealing something about his heart. But nonetheless, what he's showing him is that he, his primary focus was what he had here, not eternal life. I think that, that that probably pulls in all of us more than anything else, in my opinion. Because we all want our lives and our situations to be better, don't we? Anybody here doesn't? <laughs> like, I, go, I just wish tomorrow things would get worse for me. Right? I just wish I'd have less money. I wish that I would be, you know, we don't want those things. It's not that we are, it's not that we're supposed to go out and try to make things worse. We do. We've given this ability to build and to produce and, and to make a better life. But then it's sometimes we start to live for those things. Don't you think? How does it happen? Like, what is the, what goes on? Forget the big picture. Yeah. Yeah, lack, you need contentment. Yeah. I think, um, I, I think it's a real struggle for people. It's a real struggle, I think, for um, probably people my age. And most of the people in the room are either considerably younger than me or considerably older than me. <laughs> so, like... I'll tell you, so all you guys that are, that are on, your, on your way up, what happens when you're young is you don't have anything, right? You've got nothing. You, you got an education. You're working for stuff. If you do well in your life and you start to have a little bit of success, you start to enjoy that. And you're like, oh, you know what? It's a little bit nicer. This is a little bit nicer. And what happens is your lifestyle starts to control you instead of the Holy Spirit. And we see that in our world today, like people that, you know, it's all about the next vacation they're going to go on or the next uh, thing that they're going to purchase and what excites our passions, what gets us um, is temptation. But it doesn't have to be like an economic thing like that. It could be that, you know, we want a certain family lifestyle or we want to be able to experience certain things in our life. But we need to remember as Christians, yes, Enjoy life. The book of Ecclesiastes talks about that. We should. It's, it's kind of like what my dad said a few minutes ago. A lot of these, the scripture presents a balance, or I like to use the word tension. Like there's these two ideas. They seem contradictory, but they're not. They're supposed to be held in tension. Then on the one hand, you know, yes, we do pursue success to some degree in life. At the same time, we can't live for those things. We pursue a happy family and good circumstances, but, but we can't live for that. Does that make, make, make sense? You know what I mean? So 
but these are all issues of just really asking ourselves the question, going all the way back to the little town of Bethlehem, is am I okay with insignificance? Am I a servant? Am, am I focused on a spiritual battle, or do I have things that I just want to fight about that are important to me and not the Lord? And then, am I living for here and now, or am I living for eternal life? Anybody, any final thoughts before we wrap this one up? Well, one of the most, one of the, one of the characters in the Bible who embraced insignificance was Mary. Absolutely. I'm doing my adult Bible study on Mary this Sunday, and just studying her life today. And uh, she just was a very insignificant. And it's ironic because there are some who want to take her now and make her more. And she does play, obviously, a significant role in the title. But there are some that want to put her at, at such a significant level that uh, almost above Jesus. And uh, the ironic thing is she's just the opposite. Yeah. I read it into one of those. And through it. I think it was that ear doctor. Uh, they were protesting, they were walking back and forth, and I think they were protesting abortion. And they had like a, the rosary, maybe? Ro yeah, yeah, rosary thing on, going on. And, you know, me and Joey we had time in the middle, so we were just walking around and, you know, relaxing. And came up to me and was like, and I heard some kind of, a, you know, music. It sounded like, a, you know, kind of music. And I said, oh, was that? And I started saying something about Mary, how she should be hit or. He's going on, and I said, you know, and well, she blessed you. Know, I said, Mary was very blessed, but, but Jesus is, there you, know, you go. I can't remember. That's Jesus is who we praise. Actually, that's, that, I don't know if there's any better response than and that. Walk away. Mary is, yeah, Mary is very blessed, but Jesus is who we praise. I think yeah. that's a great way to put it, yeah? I was like, because uh, I never really spoke out like that. Oh! <laughs> that's all right, good stuff. Well, that's uh, that's a wrap for tonight. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll go to our uh, we'll go to our prayer time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word tonight, and for just this group that came to uh, share in the discussion and grow in our faith together, studying the Bible. Lord, help us to just be people that seek to be Christ-like and to serve others, to live for you, to live for eternity, and not worry about our name. Our, our reputation, but just to be all about your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.